Well, I'm excited to tell you this morning, we're going to attempt to have a jet tour through the book of Proverbs, all 31 chapters of this magnificent book of wisdom. So please call your family right now and tell them you'll be home for dinner a little late because this is going to be a lot. No kidding, all kidding aside, we're going to try to take this jet tour through the book of Proverbs, which is going to be over an hour of our time here. And again, it'll probably take more than that. And it's probably something that you've never experienced before in your Christian life. And I say that because I'm going to try to reduce my sermon series that I did on Proverbs from 600 pages of manuscript, over 180,000 words to one single sermon. So we'll see if this is possible. Uh, We'll see if it was actually probable in the first place. Just so you know, when I first received this assignment, I was given two uh, sessions to do this. And then last week, I was told that I would have one session to do it. And so I love challenges. So I'm here and very open. Now, you might be asking yourself, why haven't I ever heard of someone attempting to do a jet tour through the book of Proverbs before? And there might be many reasons for that, actually. Uh, Most expositors of the book of Proverbs and of Scripture see the first nine chapters of Proverbs to have a flow that's somewhat easy to understand and to track with. But after the ninth chapter, the exposition of this book gets a little tricky. And so many times after chapter nine, these Proverbs are just studied thematically, not contextually as we're going to do this morning. So let me tell you Ecclesiastes 12 first to show you why we're going to study this the way we are. Go to look at what Proverbs author Solomon says under a different name. He says, speaks of himself here as the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And go to Ecclesiastes 12 to give you kind of the methodology behind the attempt that we're going to try this morning. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9 through 10, we read this. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher, means Solomon, also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Do you see that? He pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. So Solomon is saying there that he studied and found proverbs that he wanted to use, and then he arranged them. So he thought about where they would go, and he thought about what the theme would be, and then he would arrange them in the way that the Holy Spirit would guide him to do that. And that tells me that there was a method to the madness of proverbs and how they have been selected. So in all these proverbs, Solomon says there was a studied arrangement of their placement by a divinely inspired mind. So let me give you up front the sense of how this whole book flows, and then we're going to go through it literally one chapter at a time. Uh, From chapter one until chapter nine is Solomon, who is our teacher, and it's here he has this almost expository form of how he longed with all his heart to prepare his son, the prince, to be his son, the king. So he begins by addressing all the temptations that would allure his son away from wisdom. And he confronts the weaknesses that would defeat him, as well as the responsibilities that would strengthen him. These are very straightforward pleadings from Solomon's heart, from a father to a son, just to trust in the Lord with all his heart and not to lean on his own understanding. And so it's really easy to kind of follow these heartfelt treatises through those nine chapters. And the story comes to us really scene after scene. However, in chapter 10 through chapter 24, Solomon changes his plan. He chooses now to present us wisdom through individual proverbs instead of a monologue form. So he deliberately shifts our thoughts from the flow of one from the other in almost kind of a a seamless manner to a more scattered-like stream of consciousness series of snapshots in the way that it unfolds. Because Solomon has arranged these proverbs in clusters of thought, 
these Proverbs, through the inspired mind of God, start to be more difficult to trace the larger ideas. And so we're going to try to find the context and look at the larger ideas that God would have us communicate or me communicate to you. Then it's midway through Proverbs 24 that Solomon switches from author of the Proverbs to the editor of the Proverbs. And he begins to give us a divine wisdom that he chose from other divine, excuse me, ancient Near East sages that he encountered in his travels. And yet always under the framework of the fact that he's teaching his son, the future king, from Proverbs to be able to learn how to rule. So the doctrine of inspiration is going to be seen as we go through this book, too, how even pagan sages were used by God to divinely put his handiwork on display. Then in chapter 25, God brings us back to the Proverbs of Solomon, but this time there's been a 200-year gap after Solomon had died, and now the men of King Hezekiah were allowed to arrange the Proverbs of Solomon so that his tradition of speaking to the perils of politics and how that might rule over a nation one day would continue. So then for five more chapters, from chapter 25 to 29, we're blessed to see wisdom through Solomon's eyes once more by their guided hands. And then in chapter 30, only one chapter away from the book's ending, we're introduced to something also we've never seen before, and that is a new sage, a new mysterious learned man who not only has never before appeared in scripture, but also brings with him a completely different style, and his name is Agur. And we finally see in chapter 31, we're introduced to the teachings of another man who was King Lemuel. And if you've ever heard of these two men, both Agar and, and Immuel, the first time they appear in Scripture is actually in this book of Proverbs. The only thing we do know about Lemuel is that he had a mother, and he is presented, therefore, to us as a king, and she is presented to us as a queen in chapter 31. She was a mother queen who had, like the one before her, received an oracle from God and been inspired by God to communicate the following words to her son. So that's kind of the flow of the book of Proverbs from the aspect of its author. And I tell you this because up front, instead of going through the Proverbs thematically like most people do, we're going to go through these Proverbs this morning dealing with clusters of thought that we find in each context, bringing out the main ideas that we have there, knowing that these Proverbs have been arranged with a divine purpose for us to observe. So clearly, this is not going to be a comprehensive study of each proverb of each chapter. That'd be impossible for me to do. But my prayer is, as we go through this this morning, that it will be practical and encouraging and also sometimes confronting as we journey through this entire book together. Why do I say confronting, by the way? It's going to be confronting because you're going to see in our time together that wisdom is shown here in the book of Proverbs as one who shows up on the front porch of our lives, knocking loudly on the door, saying that throwing rocks at our windows, rattling our cages, trying to constantly wake us up for the invitation of wisdom, to accept wisdom. It's confronting because it deals with our marriages, it deals with our children, it deals with our future, it deals with our temptations, and it deals with our sin. It does not leave us alone. Wisdom will not relent from shining intense light into the four corners of our lives. It will not allow us to hide from the urgent offer without doing extreme damage to ourselves. It aims, wisdom does, to call us away from the deadly trap set for our life's fork-in-the-road decisions, and it ultimately aims to keep us safe, listen to this, from ourselves. So we begin our study, it's important you realize 
Many times it seems that Christians come to the book of Proverbs with an attitude of kind of finding for themselves a little uh, helpful hint to kind of sustain them throughout the day. Uh, they approach these little sayings of like practical nuggets of truth that they can recite when life gets challenging. And that's true, of course. But since the Proverbs are conveniently arranged into 31 chapters, some people devote themselves to reading one chapter every day, Monday through Sunday, kind of like a practical tip of the day club, which is fine. And yet the book of Proverbs is so much more than that. It's so much more. And these Proverbs are going to, again, call to us, cry to us, stretch their hands out to us to hold them as instructions from God for us. They literally yell at us to listen to them for life. They also dare us and mock us and laugh at us and watch in horrific silence as we fall to the destruction of those who refuse to listen to wisdom's cry. They say that's treasure here in the book of Proverbs. What kind of treasure? What kind of wisdom is this? A wisdom, listen to this, that cannot be learned, a wisdom that must be sought must be desired, and it requires no prerequisite, no book study, no after-school tutoring. This wisdom requires only the ears to hear it and the sense to acknowledge it when one has received it. It's a very different kind of wisdom altogether. It's the wisdom of God, and he gives this wisdom to those who will hear him. I want to say that this session can be a profound time for us if we want it to be, if we grab these truths and run with them, if we study it as if our lives depended upon it. All of us here are sons and daughters. Many are husbands and wives. Many of us are fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers. Some of us even hear future mothers and fathers. And the Proverbs, like in none other, no other book in the Bible concerning our lives, also concern the lives of children. I'll just give you a little quick summary of that. Chapter 1, verse 8, hear my son. Chapter 2, my son. Chapter 3, my son. Chapter 4, hear, O sons. Chapter 5, my sons. Chapter 6, my son. Chapter 7, my son. Chapter 10, a wise son. Chapter 13, a wise son. All the way to the last chapter, chapter 31, O my son. This is the theme that I want to develop for you. And I think you get the point. The issue before us is this. Giving to our children what we pray has been first given to us is a living truth embodied in the living hope that says wisdom is crying for you, so please, with everything in your heart, listen to her. Listen to her with all your soul. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever heard this before, but in some ways, this book before us is the, really the crushing tale also of wisdom unrealized. So think of that for a moment. Not like Ecclesiastes, the other book Solomon wrote was its letter of repentance. No, Proverbs is a book of hope, of great longing, great desire for the best of life to be given to those who can hear it. But sadly, it's also a book of realism. And I think everyone can hear it, but not everybody understands it because not everyone can grasp God's wisdom. I say this because as soon as the very first line of Proverbs tells us that these are a collection of wisdom sayings from Solomon son of David, king of Israel, we find ourselves in a very contemplative mood. These are clearly more than just wisdom pearls. These are more than just instructions of wise behavior. This is a father's attempt to save his son's life, a father's attempt to save his son's life from going the way of error and of hardship. These are nuggets of hope as a father's best attempt to change the course of destiny in his boy's direction. These are what some people have said, are they called threshold speeches? Threshold speeches, speeches given from a father to a son at the threshold of adulthood. 
a son who is about to venture into the great unknown of his life and needs a reminder, needs a plea from those who love him the most to stick to the voice of wisdom. I think we all can relate to that. That still goes on with us today. We want to give wisdom to our children. We want to give wisdom to our nieces and our nephews, to our grandchildren, and hopefully to ourselves. Now, let me set this up for you. According to 1 Kings chapter 3, God asked what, it was, what Solomon wanted, and Solomon prayed for wisdom. Remember this? 1 Kings 3, 6 through 12. The Bible also states that the whole world sought the audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Later in chapter 4 also, in verse 29, it says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. And then in verse 31, his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. Verse 32 of 1 Kings 3 also says, He spoke 3,000 proverbs. And verse 34 there says, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kinds of the earth who had heard of this wisdom. Chapter 10 of 1 Kings, verse 23 says, so King Solomon became greater than all the kings on the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Now, I I give this to you because this is kind of the underlining sadness that kind of hovers over this entire book. And that is the book itself never tells you something that it couldn't tell you, which is the book couldn't comment on something that had not yet happened. But Solomon's great wisdom, the wisdom we're going to learn about today, regardless of Solomon's great wealth, great talent, great access to everything he ever wanted, Solomon's son fell. Solomon's son, whom he poured out his whole life to and through this book, fell so hard that the kingdom was actually split in two, as 1 Kings 12 explains. Now, this is staggering to me. This is the backdrop of this great, great book. This is overwhelmingly sad because the unspoken but what I call the ghost that haunts the book of Proverbs is that many of the Proverbs before us in our hands today never made it into the heart of Rehoboam. It wasn't enough, even with all of this great wisdom. It wasn't enough that his father was Solomon. It wasn't enough that he had everything he wanted, that Rehoboam had all the toys, all the perks. It wasn't enough that he had power, he had influence. He had everything at his disposal that should have made him happy. But sad to say, what we have here in the 31 chapters is a collection by Solomon as the editor and Solomon as the author, but still it was not enough to keep Solomon's house from crushing him. Why is that? Because all the massive weight of Solomon's extreme wisdom wasn't enough to keep his own heart from falling into sexual sin, if you remember. And because of his foolish example, his son Rehoboam fell as well, and he raised a fool as his son because his son saw in his father a foolish king. This is why Solomon has been called the wisest fool in the Bible. Why do I tell you all of that? Because I want to give you a word to the wise. You, you who seek to be godly parents, you who seek to be godly teachers, um, you who are godly preachers, you who seek to be faithful in ministry and faithful in your workplaces, as I know you do, you must first seek wisdom for yourself. You must first seek wisdom more than anything else to find it for yourself, and then you can cling to it, or you too shall go the way of Solomon and his sons. So let's begin this jet cruise 
tour with chapter one. And I just want to emphasize with you for chapter one, there's one great message here. And the overarching message is fear the Lord. And we know that because look at verse one and verse seven. Uh, Verse one of the book of Proverbs says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of the wise and understanding, to receive instruction and wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the naive, the youth knowledge and discernment. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. But to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and the riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. I want you to view these exhortations through the eyes of Solomon as first the king expressing the intention as a king of Israel to the people of God to fear God. And he begins his proclamation by first establishing for his readers the intention that he has for them through this entire book is to receive instruction and for them to have moral direction, to learn, to receive counsel, to receive wisdom. But I want to draw your attention today that statement he makes in verse 6 when he says, speaks of the word of the wise and their riddles. Uh, Orientals of that day loved riddles. And he uses a word here for enigmas. He talks about understanding a proverb for the riddles that they are. Why are they riddles? Why are they enigmas? Because enigmas are given to us to block the reader. They're there, their sayings are marked by strange images or, or pointless words or puzzling statements. And they're disguised. They're there for us to contemplate. The difficulty is not in understanding them, but knowing that there's always something beyond the obvious, something that's more than meets the eye. As one commentator said, we are all on a brief and hurried journey from the womb to the tomb. Apart from divine wisdom, we have no satisfying answers to the important questions of life. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? What is life all about? Why is evil so prevalent and triumphant? Is there a life beyond death? Is there a God? These are the riddles of God that are to save our lives. And here, Solomon is saying, look deeper. So it is with the fear of the Lord. Here is the mystery of the ages. Here's the great, wonderful first thought of Scripture's Proverbs. The beginning, the first and controlling principle of wisdom is not merely a right method of thought, but it is a right relationship and a worshipful relationship with the one true God who has revealed himself by the name Lord. In other words, the true knowledge in its full sense is a relationship. Wisdom in its full sense, the fear of the Lord, is a relationship. And that's the key thought here. The king is communicating, first and foremost, true wisdom, true knowledge is dependent on revelation and indispensable from character, inseparable from character. This calls for a reverential trusting in God. It has to start there. Remember, that's the same conclusion that Solomon came to in Ecclesiastes 12 at the very end when he said, after all that I have searched in life and studied, he said, fear God and trust him and because he is the one that we are going to go into judgment. The conclusion, when all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments. This applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. So Solomon ends his life saying, fear God, and he started his life in wisdom saying, fear the Lord. That is wisdom. This is a riddle of riddles to me. 
that somewhere deep down inside the enigma must be understood that we are living life under the eye of a powerful God who loves and judges and sacrifices. And the truth is we eventually will have to come to terms with him and to understand that then we need wisdom more than money, more than influence, more than pleasure, more than fame. We must have a fear that engulfs us, a fear of God. So chapter one, the main thought is fear the Lord. Chapter two of this same book, Proverbs, we come face to face with heart cries of every man and every woman who was ever determined to stand firm in the Lord and to lead his son or daughter in the truth. These are the godly groanings of everyone who would call themselves a parent, everyone who sees their children delivered into the world and to grow in their own likeness. This is called the lecture of the lifetime. That's what I call chapter two, the speech that every father or mother is destined to give one day. It is the mandate on manhood that's been building from day one, the proverbial rite of passage speak that so few boys ever receive and all boys so desperately need. Just so you know, in the, in the Hebrew, it's, this is one long, enormous sentence in the Hebrew. It's as if Solomon took one almighty breath and then breathed out and exhaled an entire content of his heart in one long, unbroken thought. This is the heart cry of a father. This is the uncensored counsel of a man or woman who loves God so desperately and wants so desperately to permeate that wisdom into the heart of his little child. And so it comes to us in one long thought expressed in one unbroken section of 22 verses as an expression of passion, ardor, and immediacy for this Holy Spirit-inspired Father's longing for the Son. Let's look at this plea. The plea is that wisdom would consume the child. Let wisdom consume you. He says in verses one through five, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. This is a massively profound section as it unfolds and the reason it's here is I think first and foremost, it's an emotional aspect of, of Solomon's plea. I mean, he wants with all his heart for his son to want wisdom, please want wisdom, want wisdom more than anything. He wants him to desire the desire to pursue understanding because it has to start there. Think of this for me, with me for a moment. We know that all Jewish fathers were commanded in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9 to teach their children wisdom. That was a command of God to all Jewish fathers. The way of God, the truth of God, the love of God, first and foremost, had to consume the father, however, before it could consume the son. And once he becomes faithful, that command, he can point his son day and night, night and day towards being consumed with God as well. First, I myself must be consumed with following God, and then my son, I can teach you. And that's why he uses such strong words here to try to light a fire underneath his son. Receive me, treasure these words, open your ears to me, incline your heart, bend your heart towards me, cry, lift up your voice, shout. Let me see what you... Let me let what you seek, son, be more than some petty exercise in trying to sell me on the fact that you want to be obedient. Let it be a deep yearning of your heart. I want you to be overwhelmed with being overwhelmed with consuming God. That's the cry of the Father. Wisdom, son, shall be your food. And I also want you to notice if the emphasis of the conditional clause, if, that he uses. He uses all through if 
represents a decision every person, every young man and woman has to make. If represents the truth that all sons and daughters must understand that they can either go the way of wisdom and find love and life and God, or they can turn their back on her and find bitterness and isolation and death. And yet, interestingly, this if that goes all the way through, if you will receive my wisdom, if you cry for discernment, verse 4, if you seek her as all of these ifs going all the way through doesn't demand understanding from this son. It doesn't require some deep penetration of insight. It only asks that the desire to grasp the truth is alive and consuming in the child's heart. So Solomon is saying, cry of, if a desire for his boy to become a man, he wants him to just want to become this God-fearing man. And we see here in our text that to be one that is consumed by this wisdom, at least a fear, there are some guideposts that he has to remember. And just briefly as I go through this, first, his son should listen attentively to the teachings of his father, verse 1 and 2. That is, he must accept the teachings as valid. He has to commit them to memory. He must focus all his attention on them. Second, he must yearn for wisdom, a way that's analogous to uh, somebody pleading to God for, or a king for deliverance from trouble. We see that in verse 3. Third, he has to seek it as one who seeks for lost money or hidden treasure. He has to treasure the commandment within him so he could search for the treasure outside of him. Let me say that again. He must treasure the commandments within him, verse 1, so that he can search for the treasure outside of him, verse 4. The Bible speaks of this even in Matthew 13, 44, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. The Bible says this secret something we seek is not of this world, and the reason that we dig to uncover something we can't find on our own, but we are allowed to discover by grace is that what we discover will be the fear and knowledge, verse 5, of God. The fear of God motivates the search for wisdom, which later develops into a more fully developed and sophisticated kind of fear of God. The fear of God many times begins with little learning or understanding. The son, the child may fear the Lord in emotion only, and then he fears what he really doesn't understand, but he's willing to accept. And then he knowledge of God comes and which deepens his awareness of what he should fear the Lord for. And then his conscience is fused with more and more knowledge of God's will. And then the treasure itself becomes clear to him and then it consumes him. This is the hope of Solomon. Now in chapter three, we have Solomon continuing this lecture of a lifetime by giving little pieces of godly advice to his children, from a father to a son, from a mother, if you will, to a daughter. And the main piece of advice here is trust God with where you want to go. We see this in verse 1 through 10 of Proverbs 3. I'll only read you the most famous part, of course. He says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart be keep my commandments for the length of days and years and life and peace they will add to you. And then, of course, in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Now, clearly, verses 5 through 6 are some of the most famous verses in Proverbs. And I want to look at those with you in a moment. But first, let me just make a general observation about this chapter. If there's anything that stands out to me the most is the beginning section is the heart of Solomon, again, reaching out to ensure that if anything else is remembered, it should be that his son drives his message into his heart. That's the key concept between verses one and three. Do not forget is just another negative way of saying remember. What is to be remembered in the content of this? Don't forget the things I have taught you. Don't forget the things I have said. Of course, it's not that the boy forgets, but he allows himself not to remember. 
But when he or she is walking out that door and they're at the brink of a new life, their life, a life you cannot touch or you cannot snoop around with, you have to pray and plead and hope with all your heart that they don't get spiritual amnesia. The main thing, dear son, is to keep the main thing the main thing. This is the motivation. This is the zeal, the urge behind everything he wants to say. But there's more to the message than just the emotional desire to convey it. There is more than just merely begging your child to listen to you. And what is it? Well, the main thrust is what Solomon longs for, not to be forgotten, is again, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In other words, do not trust in your own intelligence, but rather put your entire confidence in the Lord. Do not think that your own understanding is enough to help you, my dear son. You must trust God with your thinking. In other words, he will show you the right path or he will make your path level. He will show you what to do. He will direct your life. Then in chapter four, we see Solomon's father, King David, as well making an entrance into this royal stage that we've considered. And King David was Prince Solomon's classroom. And why do I say that? Because Solomon here in chapter four starts to speak and teach his son the lessons of wisdom. He's telling him stories from his father, King David. Solomon is telling his son now tales from a grandfather to the ears of the child. And what did he teach? Look at verse five. He says, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Verse seven, acquire wisdom with all your understanding. Get wisdom, get understanding. Now, I hope you're starting to feel the tremendous weight that Proverbs have so far on just placing the desire to want wisdom on the child. That's not, it's what is wise, it's not what is wise just yet, we don't know. He hasn't even described what wisdom truly is other than fearing the Lord. He says, but love her and get her and prize her and, and emulate her and embrace her. So Solomon tells his son to treat wisdom the way he would treat their mother or sister or wife. Love her, honor her, embrace her, exalt her. And Solomon does this because he understands even before a child can recognize the value of wisdom, he has to be and she has to be committed to acquiring it. It's not enough to do wise things. The son must love wisdom. And the fact that this setting of this teaching takes place prior to and independent from the student's observation about life, the plea becomes a plea for trust as well. Chapter 5, we come to a passage of Scripture that portrays a very sacred moment in the relationship between a father and son. This is the moment when the father and son become man to man. This is when they speak. This is the moment when a father stares into the eyes of that little boy and pauses before he shatters his innocence. After this conversation of chapter 5, the boy will now be a man. And after this conversation, the son will receive the passport into a very dark world that he may have not otherwise have known. After this conversation, this young son will see the ways of the world in a whole new light. Though he is much younger than his father, he will be confronted with the same horrors that all men are confronted with. Though he is much younger, he too will be exposed to the same temptations, same struggles, and the same secret warfare that his hero father has to deal with as well. And that's what makes this conversation of chapter 5 so very hard, so very intense to the father. He must tell his son of this other world that exists. He must tell his once baby boy how truly deceptive and wretched the world truly is, both on the inside and on the outside. This is the ultimate facts of life speech. 
This is much more than just the impartation of information about the birds and the bees. This is a warning about the darkness of a world that this young man has never seen. This is a warning about faithlessness. This is a warning about self-destruction. This is a warning about the evil that lies deep and ready to see the naive one to death. Chapter 5 is much more than a lesson in anatomy and biology. This is a warning about what lies ahead. And I say that because, you know, famously, Proverbs 5, they have four characteristics here that concern the father's heart, four truths that consume the godly father that he must impress on his son's life before it's too late, namely the deception, dangers, diversion, and disaster of adultery. If the lad is going to become a king one day, he can never sin against God by giving his kingdom to a strange woman which is a haunting reminder of what actually Solomon himself did do. Chapter 6 then continues this theme of dangers that confront a young prince, but it's pictured as the portrait of a lazy boy. And just so you know, the lazy boy will become a dangerous man, according to Solomon. I say that because Solomon, between chapter 5's warning about adultery and chapter 6, verse 24, through chapter 7, uh, verse 27, the entire section is about lazy boys, about lazy, slothful young men. And instead of continuing through the section and then building a huge momentum towards this fatality, it's interesting. Solomon pulls over the car for a moment and he begins to warn us about something that at first seems completely unrelated to the topic of wicked women. One commentator writes, the verdict of experience is that a life of idleness is one of the most prolific sources of a life of impurity. To put it another way, Chapter 6 talks about lazy boys become dangerous men. Lazy boys become adulterers. Lazy boys are seduced very easily. Now we see as we keep moving on very quickly here, we continue chapter 7 where there is a play performed for us. And the play that is performed I have titled The Tragedy of Temptation. Here's the scene in chapter 7. A young man enters. He begins his sinful feast with this woman, and suddenly out of nowhere at the end of this horrific adventure, he lies with her and an arrow cuts through his back, impelling his liver as the husband returns. That's the sense in the Hebrew. She lied. Her husband was coming back sooner than he thought. Lust could not wait. The man of the house came too soon, and now the young man lies in cold blood. Over and over again, the flattery of the adulterous woman to listen to me, to listen to me, not the mothers and the fathers, to to listen to her voice and not our voice. So as a side comment, uh, moms and dads, we have to infuse, this is a very side comment, uh, in our children, precious as they are, we have to infuse how much we love them and care for them. We have to be saying that to them. We have to let them know how extremely precious they are to us. In a culture where there's so much false flattery and self-esteem junk, we, we've, we've kind of fallen maybe to the other extreme where we don't say what we should say as often as we should say it. Yes, they are sinners, our children are, but they are also princes and princesses. And if you don't tell them that they are, someone else will. And the people that tell them that will lead them to the way of destruction. Now, chapter 8, we find ourselves standing at a proverbial crossroads of a life of a young man. And something now in chapter 8 is calling him from above. Something is crying out from the heights. 
And it too is the sound of a woman's voice. It is the sound of an invitation. Look at verse one. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Look at verse four. Whoever is, excuse me, verse three. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here to him who lacks understanding. She says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. This young man is starting to understand that he lacks discernment and he has someone calling to him. And he has to quickly decide exactly who it is that he's going to respond to. She's calling to him. She's wooing him. He can't avoid her summons. She lives at the top of the city doors. She resides at the precipice of every high place. And no matter where he goes, she's extending her appeal to him. She wants his undivided attention. And no matter how far he travels, she extends her words to him. Her name is Lady Wisdom, and her call is unceasing for this man. I think one of the greatest dilemmas in the entire heart of a young man is to understand whose voice are they to listen to. One of the greatest dilemmas is is listening to the right voice. The entire world is yelling at our children. The entire world is trying to seduce their thoughts. Everybody wants something and promises everything. Everyone says, come this way and your life will be complete. Turn your eyes over here and see what can really satisfy your heart. And all the voices seem inviting. All the voices seem good, but only one of those voices are true. In this case, the young man before us has just come from seeing the play of chapter 7. And he's deeply convicted in the theatrical representation that he had seen of the wrong voice that that boy had listened to. And now the wicked adulteress had flattered the young protagonist with words of sweet honey that he might enter her house and feed, but her promises were lies. And he was slain by the deceit of love, like an ox to its butcher, only to have the curtain fall abruptly. The entire story was unnerving. The point here is clear by the time we get to chapter 9. The fallen hero had listened to the wrong voice. And then just as the young audience was about to leave the theater, immediately cries start to descend. As soon as he comes out from seeing what he just saw, This voice is hiding no longer. This voice is an entirely new voice. This voice isn't promising perverted or vain things. It's wisdom, and she's a lady, and wisdom is personified as a woman, and she promises truth and life and then offers her divine credentials to prove it. So in chapter 9, I hope you can follow, we see that the rest of the Proverbs, except for just a few sections, actually, Solomon is now going to begin to shift away from the pleading of wisdom, which we have seen up to this point, into the painting, the portrait of wisdom. We're going to move away from the the, the pleading for wisdom to the portrait of wisdom. No longer is the cry going to be for a son to pursue wisdom, as we have seen. It's going to be now revelation of wisdom in bite-sized portions. What wisdom looks like now that will be the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book. In other words, chapter 9 marks the end of the threshold speeches from a father to his son. But here we have the last lecture, so to speak, the last opportunity to impress on his son's mind the dangers and delights that lie before him. And he does it in the form here of two invitations in chapter 9. And it's fascinating really to consider, but of all the nemesis that could be imagined to to, to counter wisdom, Solomon says to his young son that it is the harlot woman who's going to be the greatest antagonist in his life. 
Beware of this woman because she represents everything that can kill you. She represents the primary attraction of the world and all it possesses to murder your soul by taking you off the path of righteousness by her seductions. So Solomon creates this in his imagination, what's seen as the polar opposite of the forbidden woman, and that is Lady Wisdom. The personification of Lady Wisdom was specifically created to counter the attractions of the forbidden woman. Wisdom is made into the image of a lady so that young men and all people really would understand how vital it would be to be attracted to the right path. And then in Proverbs chapter 10, as we keep moving, we begin the second section of the book that begins to deal with the individual Proverbs or wisdom sayings that Solomon so dearly wants us to internalize. Proverbs 10.1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. This, again, is the umbilical cord. This is the one never cut in time, but cut once cut in time, but never cut in truth moment where a father and mother have to their son to plead to them, but to now to paint the truth of what wisdom should be. I want to comment about how we're supposed to proceed in this study at this point. I'm going fast, I know, but I think I'm going to be able to make it. Let me see what time it is. Who knows? Uh, uh, From chapter 10 to chapter 22, verse 16, we're going to now have an assortment of 375 Proverbs, which many commentators like to point out is the numerical significance of the name of Solomon. 375 Proverbs that seem at first glance to be somewhat disconnected and arranged in a pattern that really doesn't seem to be very discernible. And so, so many times after chapter 9, as I have said, people study Proverbs just thematically or categorically. But before us today, we have a set of Proverbs that will really help us that a family will thrive if the children are diligent to work, but will collapse if they're lazy and resort to crime. That's what he's going to unpack for us here. And that the deepest happiness in life is not found in becoming wealthy or well-known, but the most important source of satisfaction with life rests in living out the wisdom given to us by a godly family. Now we come to Proverbs chapter 11, and we're going to find that we can be divided in two major sections there. And that could be based on this one idea, that the measure of a man is not based on how rich he becomes or how powerful he becomes. The measure of a man is not based on how clever he is or how shrewd he is, but the true measure of a man is based on what pleases God on the outside as well on the inside. Now, just notice with me real quick, verse 1 and then verse 20. Verse 1 of chapter 11, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And then we see in verse 20, The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. So I say this, the measure of man, what pleases the Lord versus what he hates. And clearly what he hates, what he abhors is crookedness, lying, cheating, a wicked deceit. But the Lord delights in honesty and justice, generosity, mercy, and blamelessness. So these are two sides to this balance. These are two ways in juxtaposition to one another, what God hates and what God loves, what God pleases God, and what infuriates God. And the very fact that Solomon desires to contrast the emotions of God to be placed before us on this mountain peak of the entire chapter, that you can either bring a delight to the heart of God, or you can bring disaster. You can either delight God, or you can bring your own disaster upon you. It's not enough that our children please us. They must learn what delights the Lord. Again, let's go to Proverbs chapter 12. 
Whatever, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. This is a very important proverb. I know when I say stupid, sometimes children go, oh, you're not supposed to say that, but that is what the scripture says here. Uh, it's a very important proverb. You can't say it at home, but you can say it from the pulpit. Uh, it's a very important proverb because I want to show you how this one thought ultimately wraps itself around over and over again throughout this entire chapter. And that is this, listening to good counsel, wanting wisdom demands a life of discipline, of loving discipline, of divine discipline, that wanting wisdom demands life imparting wisdom to others as well. Ultimately, those who listen to the right counsel give the right counsel. Verse 20, and their possession is the possession of joy. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. Verse 1 speaks of seeing a loving discipline, seeing discipline or desiring the correction that comes to us as demands our change. This discipline is through the words of the wise. This discipline is through the counsel of the courageous. Verse 5 of chapter 12 speaks of the counsels of the wicked, or to put another way, against listening to the wrong conductor, if you will. These words of right conduct come from verse 6, the mouth of the upright. Verse 15, the wise man is he who listens to counsel to the right conductor or ultimately to the Lord, we see in verse 22 as well. So not only must he follow the right conductor, so to speak, if you're in a symphony and you're thinking of this as if it was a a group of, of musicians together, we must follow the right conductor. We shall see that we should be concerned that the man has right conduct in picking also the kind of woman he's going to marry. We'll see in verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, or the way he speaks in verses 13 through 19, or how hard he works in verses 24 and following. This right conductor, following the right conductor, possessing the right conduct can be measured by evaluating the right consensus, namely how his audience esteems him, both humanly speaking concerning his reputation in verses 8 and 9, and the way it affects others in verse 18. Now, all of these points use of the mouth and degree of his diligence, all are going back to this idea of loving wisdom. Do you really love wisdom? Do you really love discipline as well? And do you embrace it with all your heart, the correction of wisdom? Moving fast now, chapter 13, Solomon wants us to understand the necessity of accepting discipline, of of looking at our desires and our affections and our appetites and bending them to the way of wisdom to see past the very moment to the bigger picture of why a father wants to give instruction in the first place. Why is it so life-concerning? Why is it so soul-quenching? Discipline must be taught to us by a master craftsman, our fathers, who heat up our affections and desire through the crucible of teaching us wisdom, who must at times hammer and chisel away at ragged parts of our lives until the dead weight is gone and we might emerge before our families and all people as triumphs and trophies of grace. When you read chapter 13 of Proverbs, you're not going to find God anywhere in it. The name of the Lord doesn't appear in chapter 13, or it's not even referenced. Uh, First, notice with me that the chapter begins and ends with bookend ideas that the son and the father's relationship in regards to discipline. Verse 1, a wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And then verse 24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. 
So right from the get-go of this chapter, we are aware that Solomon hasn't left this theme of wanting with all his heart for his son to understand the way of wisdom. We see that his own instruction is an act of love toward his son. I want to draw out another theme here that's associated with this idea of discipline, and we see it in the verses, verses 1 and 24 in context. Again, verse 2 then, from the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. And then we see in verse 25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. So I want you to see something here. I want you to notice in verse 25 and verse 24, and also in verse 2, that after the thought about discipline comes the focus or, or uh, attention on desire or appetite. I tell you this so you can see there's a theme here of discipline and desire connected, or as one commentator said, a disciplined appetite. These are the demands of discipline. For your princes and princesses to understand that a life, and, a life committed to accepting your discipline as a parent will result in a life that is satisfied and wealthy and wise. Again, back to verse 1. In the original Hebrew, it says, a wise son, a father's discipline. A wise son, a father's discipline. In other words, if you see a son that's wise, you can pretty much bet on the fact that it came from a father's discipline. Now, here's a problem, gentlemen. I want to make sure we all understand this. Uh, your demand of discipline in your sons and daughters doesn't always produce wise children, okay? Uh, you could pour out your entire life on your children. You could have smothered them with love and affection and Sunday school and Awana, and you could have attended every single sporting event and every piano recital, and you could have planned special getaways together and take them off to work and chaperone and go to a field day and speak and speak and speak and speak about God in their life until you were blue in the face, and they could turn around and break your heart like a twig. This proverb is not saying otherwise. But it's also true that you could be so busy with two jobs and sleepless nights trying to pay the bills that you're thankful just to make it on church on Sunday and you had very little impact in their life and you live with a great hole of regret every day in your waking life that you they could end up being the most ungodly people, but they end up being godly, wise leaders in the church. This proverb isn't making any declarations. But all laced through this chapter is this language about desire. Look at verse 12 with me. And then look at verse 19, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Verse 19, desire realizes sweet to the soul, but it's an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. In the human heart lies an insatiable desire to be fulfilled, whether it's through food, physical activity, achievement, reward, temporal, the human heart is hungry all the time. The heart is starving. The heart is a bed of lava ready to be poured into any mold representing it. Without discipline, it flows to the lowest level. And that's what this is trying to say. I think a good father understands his son's cravings. Instead of approving them, he empathizes with them. He speaks to them. He shows his son the demand that wisdom for true knowledge has for true happiness and true life. That's the sense of verse thir chapter 13. Chapter 14 begins with a reference to a wise woman who's building her house, automatically reminding of those who were in Proverbs 9.1 that wisdom had built her house in the feminine. Wisdom being a woman, as we learn, because wisdom is represented as to what a young prince is really desiring more than anything else, the desire to have the right woman. So wisdom is feminine. Be that as it may, verse 1 of chapter 14, you have this young prince thinking again of a future wife and what kind of woman she's to be. And we're going to see a lot more of that in chapter 31, of course, 
where the excellent wife is studied. Now, just to set the stage for this, what does this prince need to learn about? One verse about a wife who either builds her house or destroys her house by her own hand. Um, now, here's my point. Let me see. Verse, the wise woman builds her house, verse 1, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Now, here's the point. Solomon's son is a prince, okay, not a woman, but Solomon is doing more than just preparing his son not to divorce, I believe. He's bringing truth through the back door, uh, truth in an indirect way, that being you yourself can destroy your own house. Realize this, my son, but he's going to do this through the illustration of a woman. Just in case he misses the point, he speaks to it later again in verse 11, speaking of the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. He's going to speak of the house of the wicked versus the tent of the upright. One is destroyed while the other flourishes. These lessons are for a kingly court. These lessons are for the one being tutored, listen, to be a leader. But along the way, we see what really is the matter is a leader has sacrifices what he has, has to sacrifice whatever it takes to be, wisdom, be wise, excuse me, to learn to fear God and to learn to lead a nation. And to do that, he must know his own heart first. He must enter into the house of his heart through the back door if necessary. And then he can understand things there that he could not fathom otherwise. Look at verse 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but in its end is the way of death. This is a very poignant and striking proverb, one who's also repeated again in Proverbs 16.25. What is so profound about this verse is this. While it's true that no one really understands you, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really no one can understand you in and of themselves, that doesn't still make you right. Uh, thinking you're right, thinking that your sincerity of heart somehow translates into the reality of truth is not the same thing. Uh, we know this today of all days. It's, we have a culture co- dominated by emotion. We have a culture that says if you're not living by your emotional compass, something's wrong with you. Our feelings are literally our barometer for living. We excuse away the most horrific sins because we're, they're in concert with our deepest longings. People leave their spouses because, and engage in behavior they shouldn't because it seems to temporarily satisfy the lust to only find out that God is going to be judging you for those things. In other words, since no one can know your heart, you believe you understand your heart and you're right, but the Bible says you're wrong. You're very wrong. You see, all the right feelings can be wrong to God and it ends in death, a spiritual death. And a future king has to see that. He has to see error in his own heart, which is further explained in chapter 15, where we begin to look at the hidden life of a wise man. The hidden life of a wise man, making some general observations first about this chapter. This chapter begins with an emphasis on the way you speak, uh, with an emphasis on the way your mouth and the consequences are speech. Verse 1 and 2 begin with these thoughts. Again, chapter 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. Now look, look at verse 4. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but, a, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. If you would notice with me in verse 3, we have an interruption of this emphasis on speech with a very curiously placed verse on the omniscience of God. Look at that. The eyes of the Lord are every place watching the evil and the good. So we have a gentle answer turns away wrath. The tongue of the wise. Verse 4, a soothing tongue. But verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are every place. Again, in verse 7, we're going to see the reference to the way those who wise speak versus the hearts of fools and how they are to resist such an expression. And interestingly here, we see a contrast between what comes out of a wise man and what stays in a fool. 
In other words, the emphasis is on whether you are a fool or wise. There is a connection between what comes out of your mouth and what is in the heart. And then, interestingly, directly after this teaching on the mouth versus the heart comes teaching on what is hated by God in verses 8 and 9. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. Now, notice something that Solomon says here in verse 8 about a wicked man sacrificing to the Lord and an abomination to him, while the prayers of the upright are a delight. There's a contrast there between two religious actions. One is nonverbal, a sacrifice, and one is verbal, a prayer. Both religious activities seemingly good on the outside in that sacrifice is an expression of the heart, just as much as prayer is, but one is deemed wicked by God and the other is his delight. The evaluation by God then is not on the external act, very important, whether verbal or nonverbal, but it's the hidden motivation behind each action, that being the heart. And this is all real summed up in verse 11. Shale and Abandon lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men. The heart is not hidden from God. Regardless of how you are perceived on the outside, God knows the inside for who you really are. And the closet of your hidden heart is seen even though you believe yourself to be safe in secret because ultimately there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. This is vital for a future king to know. Proverbs 16. We have a set of Proverbs written to that end, Proverbs that speak to a prince about what he must understand to be a king. And just by way of observation, let me say nowhere else in Proverbs do we have this idea of God and kings together except here in this chapter. Proverbs 16 alone speaks of God and kings. In terms of referencing the Lord as Yahweh, we see his name referred to nine times between verses 1 and 11 in chapter 16. It's also important to note that Unlike anywhere else in Proverbs, we also have the issue of a king appearing five times in verses 10 through 15. So what you have here in verses 1 through 9 is speaking of Yahweh, verses 10 through 15 speaking about king, verses 16 through 24 kind of form a loose unit, let's say ordinary people, and then scoundrels in verses 27 and 30. In other words, the lessons here in the first nine verses of our chapter are directing our thoughts toward first the heavenly king before we are to consider the earthly king. And I want you to notice that there seems to be an intentional design to all of this, how the sayings about God overlap the Proverbs about kings. For instance, since God weighs the motives and intentions, verse 2 of chapter 16, the king must know that a set of weights and skills are his doing, verse 11. God establishes human plans, verse 3 and 9, even as the king's throne is established through righteousness. Solomon tells us that human pride is an abomination to the Lord and brings punishment, verse 5, just as wicked acts of kings are an abomination to the Lord, for their thrones are to be established in righteousness. God can be pleased by human ways, verse 7, just as kings take pleasure in our lips, verse 13. So Solomon wants to impress on his prince son the incredible connection between king who rules and the ruler of kings. They must share the same heart, they share the same roles, and therefore their direction must be the same. Chapter 17, I want to direct you to now because we have before us here another series of Proverbs that addresses the family and the never-ending strife that can live there. These are Proverbs are about sons and fathers and grandfathers and servants and houses and brothers and friends, all of which make the central theme that revolve around the issues of the home. 
the issues related to domestic issues, matters of family matters. And we've all throughout this chapter is the theme of strife in the home, family feuds, if you will. So look at verse one. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. So at the very beginning of this chapter, immediately we're brought into a situation with a family where they're eating together and Solomon addresses how it would be better to be poor and have nothing and then some good old-fashioned peace and quiet than to have a banquet of feasting, yet your home is busting at the seams with strife and argument. Verse 2 speaks of the sons of shame who act so badly, it would be possible for the servant that served them to be in line for the family inheritance sooner than they are. These bad boys who seem to live in the royal lap of luxury as princes, and though they are privileged, they mock the poor, verses 5, and they lie, verse 7, and they're gossips, verse 9, and they're resistant to discipline, verse 10. They return evil for good, never understanding their bad behavior will affect the entire family, verses 13. They indulge in quarreling, verse 14. They side with the wicked and condemn the righteous, verse 15. They are senseless, crooked in mind, perverted in their language, verse 20. And then the grand summary of their actions is measured by the sorrow they bring to their fathers, verse 21, and the bitter brokenheartedness they bring to their mothers, verse 25. And all the while this is happening, they don't seem to understand that the Lord is there watching what is happening. He's there testing their hearts and motives, verse 3. He is there hearing their mocking of others as they were mocking him, verse 5. And he is the one who rejects their behavior as being repulsive to him, verse 15. This is the family feud of Solomon. This is what's going on. And that's not all we have in verse, Proverbs 17. We also have one of the greatest cures for home invasion, if you want to put it that way, you could ever imagine. Proverbs 17 tells us, that to have harmony in the home, this is so important for a future king and for us as well. It tells you how to, have peace, how to have a peaceful palace to live in. And the answers that it gives are unrelated to finances. Doesn't matter how much you make. They're unrelated to your status in society. They are related to how you deal with trouble knowing that God is near. Instead of quarreling with the ones you love, be ready to stand with them on the day that adversity comes. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> A friend, excuse me, look at verse 17. That's right. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You've heard this one before. There's varying opinions about exactly the meaning of that proverb, but let me give you one take here. There are friends in this life that are defined by how they love us all the time, whether through thick and thin. They are the treasures of our hearts. But a brother one from our own family that was born into our family will be there when the hardest times come. Chapter 18 continues this theme of our need for friends in a chapter I would title, How Fools Avoid Friends. That's how I would title the chapter of 18. Though it would be odd for anyone to deny the profound need for friendships, there are those men and women who would prefer to isolate themselves from true and lasting relationships for the sole sake of just being right. I want you to notice how this chapter begins. Look at me with verse 1 and 2 of chapter 18. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. So from the very beginning of this chapter, Solomon writes us to concern a man or woman who either purposely or not purposely separates themselves from other people because they are seeking their own desires. They want selfishly to have their own way, to fulfill their own wants, and it just doesn't make for good friendships. 
This is the individual who represents themselves, separates themselves from the community at large, from the world, the family, or from the assembly to become a renegade, to become the lone ranger, the anti-socialite, the isolationist, the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Now, with that in mind, I want you to take a look at the end of the chapter and look at verse 24, where it says, a man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So here we have a man who has many, many, many friends, many acquaintances, and many people who might be considered to come to a Super Bowl party and devour his guacamole, but he knows they're not really his friends at all. In fact, he has isolated himself and insulated himself with the illusion that these false friends more likely than not will never embrace him or never really be found to be a friend, are not close to him when trials actually come. So beginning with an observation about sinful isolation and then ending with a critique on real relationship leads us to see this chapter is going to help people understand that the fool, the isolationist, must move away from the illusion of superficiality, of thinking he has many friends, and begin to open his life to deep, personal, substantive relationships where true friendships can be found. This is important for Solomon's son to know. Then chapter 19. After dealing with people who lack friends, Solomon deals with people who lack funds. He zeroes in on the theme most of us dread to think about, the theme that keeps many people awake all hours of the night, and that is the life of a poor man. Solomon never, ever, of course, knew want. He never wanted anything. He never knew hunger, never knew homelessness. He was incredibly wealthy, richest man of his day, incredibly well taken care of. He was so rich that it would take your breath away. They said in his time, uh, it was rock, uh, silver was as common as rocks. And yet Solomon knew that he must prepare his son to understand the paradox of being poor because being poor can affect you much more than just your purse. Poverty affects your soul. Poverty affects your heart. How can this be? Because poverty can either lead to feeling hostility with God or to the greatest spiritual awakening one could ever have. The chapter starts in verse 1 by speaking of the poor man who has integrity versus the fool who doesn't. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. So chapter begins verse 1 by speaking of that, and then verse 4 leads us to believe that a fool is the one who is wealthy and attracts many friends because of that through his words are perverse versus the, versus the poor man who's basically friendless. Let me say that again. Verse 4 leads us to believe that this fool is the one who is wealthy and attracts many friends because of that, though his words are perverse, versus the poor man who is basically without friends. Verse 6 tells us how the tendency of people to seek out favor of the rich man and the generous man because he has enough money or goods, unlike that course of the penniless and the poor. Verse 7 addresses how poverty turns family members on the poor. Verse 10 speaks of how unfitting and ironic it is for a fool to live in the lap of luxury rather than they should be in poverty. It goes on and on. Verse 14, unearned wealth that comes from the inheritance. Verse 15, the lazy one who goes hungry or is poor because of his slothfulness. Verse 17, we're instructed to remember that we must be kind to the poor. Verse 22, a poor man, it's better to be a poor man than a liar. And then finally, verse 24 speaks of the sluggard who does not work, has nothing, essentially is very lazy. So what you have here in the big picture of this chapter is the fool in luxury, the sluggard in poverty, the preference for the rich and the gifts that they will buy favor. That dominates this chapter. The dominant theme here in the arrangement of the Proverbs is they're grouped together around this idea of wealth and poverty. So Solomon says it would be better to be a poor man who has honest character than an implied rich man who has arrived at his financial state because of his lying mouth. So the paradox 
is while some are rich, they're really poor. Some are, think they're rich, they're really poor on the inside because they lie. When the man who is poor is actually rich because he's determined to do the right thing, he has the right thing even if it reverses his own financial situation. And I say that because by the time we get to verse 17, we're speaking of the poor man who keeps the commandments, who fears the Lord, who is not poor because he's lazy, but he's poor because, verse 22, he's not a liar, but he is one who is in need of some kind of help, not necessarily money, but who has needs nevertheless. And what Solomon is trying to teach here in this chapter is to his son, when a man is that kind of poor and you give him to him, you are giving to the Lord who stands behind him. Thus, the Lord shows his fidelity to both the lender and the receiver at the same time. He is with you both. Now, chapter 20, we find four sayings here. It's also specifically related to the king. Verse 2 speaks of the terror of the king for those who were before him, especially when they move him to anger. We see verse 8, it speaks of the incredible power of dispersing justice throughout the kingdom because the king sits on a throne and has been founded on the commitment of doing away with evil. Then at the end of the chapter, we also see, again, the subject of the king arise in verse 26, where he is used as an instrument against the wicked, ending with verse 28, where Solomon makes a personal comment about uh, the qualities of a king that preserve him, namely that he is preserved by loyalty and truth. So we see from the very beginning of this chapter, the reemerging idea of the king, the king. Any son of Solomon would be in preparation to be a king one day. So the reference there makes a lot of sense to us. He would need to both understand the ways of a king as well as understand the expectations for those that he would rule over. He would know how he should act as the king as well as how he should act before his subjects. Verse five is saying, the motives of your heart and my heart are so deep and so below the surface of our own understanding and so unrealized that it takes a man of true understanding to draw that motive out. And to become a man like that, you have to admit your lack of understanding and you have to listen to God's wisdom, Proverbs 2, 6. You have to listen to godly mentors, parents, pastors, friends that have tasted wisdom until it becomes your passion as well. Now, you must do that and examine your heart. Why? Because when you were before a king, verse 6, proclaim your undying loyalty, you might shout from the hilltops how faithful of a man or woman you are. But you know what? It is very hard to find someone who is truly, truly faithful to the king. It is hard to find a man who is who he says he is. That's why verse 7 says, a righteous man who walks in integrity, who is honest and true, is a blessing to his children because it's so rare to find. That brings us to Proverbs 21, one of the greatest chapters in Proverbs. I say that because Solomon begins chapter 21 by saying that the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes, Proverbs 21.1. And then he ends the chapter in verse 31 by saying, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. So this framework is upon which this chapter has been crafted. As one scholar noted, according to the introduction and conclusion of the chapter, its contents referred mainly to the all-directing providence of God, the ruler of the world. So the message in this chapter is God controls the final outcome of all things, from the king's decrees to the victories of battle, and in between the decision to act and the outcome of actions lies a series of indicators that tell the individual to determine whether their choices are righteous or evil. 
Think of it, the king, the most powerful man in the world and his armies and his horses and soldiers still are merely in the hands of the Lord who directs victory whenever he wants. No matter how prepared you are to accomplish your desired destiny, God will triumph in the end and he alone actually determines the outcome as well as the effect of any righteous or unrighteous effort. You see, you're not in control of your life. I'm not in control of my life. All of the plans and your schemes do not do any way make a shortcut through God's process for how life should be lived. Rather, your so-called shortcuts in life only grant you a quicker but less powerful substitute for what you really want. You will suffer for getting what you want and getting it the way you want it, and God will use your sin against you anyway. Look at verse 21. This is really the grand summary of chapter 21. He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. There is life, righteousness, and honor for those who pursue loyalty, righteousness, and loyalty. And this is what Solomon desires for his son. This is the story he wants his son's life to tell. And the same, of course, is for us. We come now to chapter 22, where there is a great literary evidence that links verses 17 through 21 to an entirely new section of this book. What do I mean by that? We come to a section now that shifts from Solomon as the main author to Solomon as the main editor of the book from verses 22 onward. He takes various pieces of wisdom that he collected from various sources and he arranged and placed them very carefully within the canon by the guidance of the Holy Spirit under divine inspiration. Now we can say with certainty that we have come to the end of the main collection, the section that Solomon himself has written before he begins to put now on his editor's hat and give us divinely inspired Proverbs from other sources within his mind. And it is here in this chapter that we find the famous verse in child, verse six about the training up of a child. Now, let me remind you again, as we've been going through this, the book of Proverbs, for the most part, is a training manual for training princes. It's a wisdom guide for future leaders, future nobles, future dignitaries given by a father king and for those in authority like his sons. And I say this to you because these princely traits exist in chapter 22, speaking of having gracious speech because those who talk well are friends of the king, verse 11, as well as verse 29, those who are skilled in their work will stand before kings and not before obscure men. Even verse 28 speaks of not moving ancient boundaries, which your fathers have set, which is a practice most of us don't engage in, of course, unless we're map makers or kings. So we really can't escape the fact that we are surrounded, not in every verse, but all throughout the book with this idea of preparing this lad for his role as a ruler and acting, acting or teaching him how to act and think and be wise. So true, this doesn't maybe apply to all of us, but what is morally right for a prince would be morally right for us as well. This is not just parental advice to sons and kings. This is a kingly advice, but we can glean from it as well. Now, even now we come to chapter 23, and starting with the words, when you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, which again isn't a dilemma for the average man on the street. Most of us don't need any tips on which fork to use when we're dining with the president. Uh, I guess you could call this chapter a royal guide to resisting temptation. Now, I want you to notice with me some observations about this particular event uh, to sit down and eat with a ruler. What's happening here? First notice in verse 3, we are instructed not to desire his delicacies. Uh, don't desire what this ruler has in front of you. Don't desire what is common fare for the rich and famous, okay? Now, at first, that might seem kind of an odd thing to request, 
A man who is powerful and ruler would place before guests those items that are desirable because he wants them to partake of them. He wants them to be seductive and alluring and tasty. He would want the whole reason for those particular foods and delicacies to be placed there would be to impress the people that come. But later in the part of verse 3 warns us that these foods are deceptive. They are deceptive foods. And that sets up the mystery of sorts. Why would these delicacies be deceptive? Well, there could be many reasons why they're deceptive. And one is when a man dines with a powerful man, when one who rules a nation, nothing that takes place at the dinner table has anything to do with the consumption of food. It's all a test. It's always been a test. This is something that I've learned studying the book of Proverbs. In fact, actually, it's very, very common for powerful men to use banquets and similar occasions to see if a man can curb his appetite to see if he can control his use of liquor, handle himself well in society, converse intelligently, hold his tongue when necessary. So that could be a part of what the phrase means with deceptive foods, meaning that they are deceiving the guest as to exactly why they are there. But the key is the phrase, do not desire his delicacies. Don't even want them. Verse two, if you're a man of great appetite, meaning if you're one that's always hungry, always wanting more, always wanting what is expensive and luxurious to belong to the powerful man, that belongs to the powerful man, verse 2a, you better take that knife and you, that you're going to use to cut your steak and you better hold it to your throat because it would be better for you to cut yourself than to, to, to fall for that kind of deception. This is dealing with something much more than caviar and champagne. This is dressing something much bigger than pheasant under glass. This is addressing the appetite for his riches and his wealth and the finer things of life that belong to powerful rulers and CEOs. And Solomon says, don't want what they have. Don't want what they have. Why do I say this has more to do with possessions than food? Well, look at verses four through five. What we have here are preparation of a man, a king, who is powerful himself at least one day will be, and he already has a built-in desire for associating his position and his ranks with finer things in life. He already wants the, the jet airplane. He already wants the stalls of horses and gold-plated thrones. But the temptation is to always want more and more and more and more. And what I believe what we have before us here is a clear indication that these verses are a continuing study of how a godly king might prepare his son for the work of nobility. Verse 6, engaging in war, talking about the cost of warfare. He's encouraged to have a cabinet of men, a myriad of counselors to help him. Verse 11, he talks about a situation where he's a royal decision-making, where his son is directed to deliver those who are being taken away to death to prevent by doing so the slaughter of human life. Verse 21 as well, verses 23 through 24, talk about the power to make judgments. The overarching implication of this chapter is this that the finger towards the son being taught as the one who has more than common future or common responsibilities, that you should be a king, but don't desire what kings desire. Proverbs 25, moving quite along, we might be able to do this. We might be able to actually end this. Uh, um, we'll, we'll see this. I've got to, I'm going to end this, I think, in uh, 20 minutes. I think it's going to happen. Okay, Proverbs 25 is more than a selection of proverbs of snow and wind and honey and burning coals. It's an historical portrait of what happened inside the four walls of the throne room in Israel with the most important men as they're preparing to fight and defend a nation. It depicts an important human diplomacy and political and the haunting consequences of political ambition. And it doesn't stop there. Chapter 25 also has, is an incredible confirmation of the validity and persevere, uh, preservation of Scripture through the centuries. And I say this because, look, in the very beginning of chapter 25, something shocking happens. 
Shocking for a few reasons, I think, because truth be known, you've never seen this before, and I've never seen it before. It's a unique superscription in verse 1. It says, These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. Now, if you read your Bibles quickly, you probably didn't have that mean much to you, but if you were really thinking about what you're reading, it's saying this, all along, this Proverbs has been a training manual for the preparation of kings, and we've said that all along. But here we find out that it not only was Solomon the writer and arranger of his own work, but also the men of Hezekiah, who himself was a king, transcribed or compiled the following Proverbs from Proverbs 25.2 all the way to Proverbs 29.27. In other words, during the reign of Hezekiah, who was king in the land of Judah around 275 years after Solomon, he commissioned royal men, his court officials, his scribes, to collect the following 130 proverbs of King Solomon and to arrange them in a very specific order so that we might have, by the Spirit of God, holy insight into the dealings of men and kings. So what we have here is another act of divine inspiration, not only taking a collection of proverbs of the great late King Solomon and then discerning them, and taking them from the 3,000 that he had and discerning which 138 that they might take, but then also arranging them and pondering them and deliberately sorting them together under the influence of the Spirit of God to place them exactly in the order that we have today. Now, I want you to notice with me how this opening section, verses 2 to verse 27, is a section unto itself, how it transcribes bracket the, the, the collection with common phrases. Verse 2, for instance, speaks of the glory of God is to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. And then you go all the way down to verse 27. It's not good to eat much honey, nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. So we have somewhat of a natural beginning and ending to this chapter that deals with giving glory or renown to either God or his chosen instrument, the king, over giving glory to oneself, which is not something that should be done or sought out. Now, why is that being said? Because... As you begin to look at the uh, contents of 25, chapter 25, you'll notice immediately that the issue, again, is king and his men. That's the pre- predominant theme, the king and the king's men. The readers of these verses are instructed to grapple with the following truths. Verse 2, it's the glory of a king to search out matters. Verse 3, the heart of the king is unsearchable. Verse 5, the king is to have no wickedness before him. Verse 6, one should never claim honor before a king. Do not stand in the place of great men. Verse 7, that you be said of you come up here, better for you to have it be done than for you to be placed lower in the presence of a prince whom your eyes have seen. So these are all directions given by Solomon concerning how the king's men must operate within the court during their diplomatic dealings outside of the court. I say that because if you go to verse 13, there's a beautiful saying there concerning how refreshing it must be for the faithful messenger to bring the message of those who need it like cold snow in the time of hot harvest. Uh, We don't have time to elaborate, but the role of the messenger in the royal court was an incredibly complicated and dangerous work being the messenger in the king's court. And people who did it were very uh, legendary and, and skilled in their authority. First and foremost, he must be a humble man. He must not seek his own glory. He must not, this messenger, stand in the place of great men and suppose himself to be one of those great men. He must not take for place at the table with great men, but must stay fixed on his role in the kingdom and treat even his enemies with compassion. So the emphasis, again, is dealing wisely, young son. Think about how you deal within the court of your own people. Proverbs 26, we move on. We see three poems here about fools, sluggards, and troublemakers. We're still being taught through the Proverbs of King Solomon the most important aspects of training 
kings and his courtiers and how that is to be. The subject of these king's men, believe, is next for us to consider the subject of dealing with fools that surround the king. Again, we're still dealing with those people who are around the king, men and women who wreak havoc on everyone they meet. They're those individuals who attempt to present themselves as wise, but really they're dolts and fools. These Proverbs want to teach us how to interpret people, how to interpret people within the court of the king. They want us to read people rightly. They want us to understand different types of people before us and learn how to appreciate the virtue of perception so that we can not only discern the character of a fool, but learn how not to become a fool. Solomon speaks twice in this section of the particular kind of fool who was wise in his own eyes. You see that in verse 5, and you see that again in verse 12. In other words, this fool believes he's wise in his own eyes. He, fool, he, he believes his own voice. He believes what comes out of his mouth is worth hearing. And what's disconnected from the fact is he's a fool, which makes him a double fool. Verse 4 says you're never to answer a fool according to his folly or we'll become just like him. Verse 5 says that we are to answer a fool in his folly deserves so he won't become wise in his own eyes. In other words, so that he won't stay blind to the condition that he's in. So in what way are we to answer a fool, especially a blind fool, Well, we are told not to answer a fool. We are told not to do it if we answer him according to his folly. It's not that we don't answer a fool. It's just we are, verse 5 says, we must do it at times, but we are never to answer a fool when it comes, when the method that we use to shame them becomes the same kind of method of ridicule, uh, ridicule and attacks and prideful assertions that he uses. You never accuse him the same way he accuses. More often than not, All we can do is just accidentally become the very thing we are loathing. Sometimes we are called to answer a fool, but never according to his folly. To put it another way, we don't become the fool by borrowing his ways. We confront the fool with enough emotional seriousness that he must realize his wrong, but without resorting to his ignorance. Now we come to Proverbs 27. And we have to deal with almost every single aspect of royal life now, from initiation of war to the training of a prince, to now protecting his own castle from invasion. To put it another way, we're going to be taught how we can build a mighty fortress around us with family and friends. Let me say this, that the the overall lesson of chapter 27 concerns the practical counsel of a young prince's needs to protect himself, his family, and even his kingdom from the enemy of his own lust that are provoked in his home by his contemptible Contemptible wife, verse 15. I know that sounds harsh, but that's what we have here. And since the source of the issues are his own palace, he must follow the counsel of the true friends outside his council who point him away from endlessly seeking more of himself, sinfully, uh, which is natural, by showing him how his greatest satisfaction, ironically, can still be found within the four walls, which he already has been given, namely in his kingdom, his family, and his friends. Even if what they present are not what he would desire them to be, if they are bitter around him and troubling, he will come to realize that wisdom in his home is more than enough to satisfy his roaming eyes. I want to introduce you to chapter 28 as you deal with the righteous rule of a ruler. The righteous rule of a ruler. We see in verse 2, the chapter speaking of the fact that the transgression of a land can be seen clearly through the multiple princes or rulers that arise over time. In other words, if we can think of it in our day, the compounded sinfulness of a nation's people make it tend towards instability and fracture, and that instability is seen first and foremost in the number of leaders that by necessity must continually be placed in power. Verse 4, 
speaks of the great need to keep the law and not allow the wicked to forsake the law. Verse 10 speaks of the leadership that leads the upright astray is a trap for those that do it, for they're going to fall into their own pit. Verse 12, when the righteous triumph, meaning when the righteous come into power over a people, that there is great glory for all in the kingdom. But when the wicked rise, meaning rise to power, then the people hide themselves just like the Jews did from Hitler in World War II. In verse 15 and 16, we're taught about the wicked rule of the oppressor who is a ferocious as a lion or a charging bear. Leadership cannot oppress its followers. Verse 28, that closes the chapter, speaking again of the idea that we see in verse 12, namely the importance and need for a righteous rule. We need good people, righteous people to rule the people of God. So with that overview, we can tell this about the chapter. The instructions to rulers about their rule. He must be, verse 7, discerning and blameless. He must be humble, verse 9, uh, 17. He must be honorable, verse 13, reverent. Honest again, verse 16. Hardworking, verse 19. Trusting God, verse 25, and walking wisely. These are the characteristics presented to us about what a king should be and what he should long for. Chapter 29. We have the last chapter given to us by the men of King Hezekiah. The men, as chapter 25, verse 1 tells us, compiled this whole set of Proverbs. These are the final Proverbs of Solomon, Proverbs that have marked this entire book. I just want to look at a few key Proverbs in this chapter that lead us to the theme of the abuses of authority, how authority can be abused in every area of a life that a king could possess. Verse 2 of chapter 29, speaks of the fact that when the righteous increase, meaning they are increased both in number and influence, then the people or the nation rejoices. But when a wicked man rules, explaining, again, what it means by righteous increasing, then the people groan. So what we have here are different responses of a kingdom to their king. A righteous king brings joy and a wicked king brings grief. Next, we see in verse 4 a statement concerning a king who rules by justice and thus brings stability to the land versus a man... In other words, a ruler who takes bribes and overthrows that natural, national sense of fairness. Skip to verse 12, where we see the proverb that addresses the fact that if a ruler is one who pays attention to falsehood, those ministers or the knights and the, the bishops and rooks, if you will, that follow suit become wicked like their ruler's example. Again, the issues being corruption of the crown, an absolute, absolute uh, distortion of authority. And probably the most famous verse here you're very familiar with, no doubt, is probably one of the most misunderstood ones in Proverbs 2. Look at verse 18, where there is no wisdom, excuse me, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. The vision, as the new King James translates it, is revelation. The revelation, we're speaking about the revelation of God through prophetic vision. The king or queen, check this, that withholds the proclamation of the word of truth, the president or senator or congressman or pastor or elder who dares keep the word of God's revelation from the people is the same wicked ruler who cuts the very blood flow of heaven from giving life to its dying nation. This is the greatest political corruption of all. <clears throat> your people, your nation, home, even your own world will become uncontrollable unless you give them revelation, unless you give them the scriptures so that they know what God has said. Mark it down and remember that you were told, such is, the, uh, admit, uh, excuse me, such is the admonition to kings and queens and politicians and those who have authority, give them the book. Don't restrain the word of God from going to the people. Now, chapter 30. 
One chapter away from the book's ending, we are introduced to something we've never encountered before. We are introduced to a new sage, a mysterious learned man who has not only never appeared before in Scripture to us, but a man who brings a completely new style in the way that he writes. And what he seems is a little shocking at first because his name is Agur and his confession is that he is stupid. (laughs) He says he is a stupid man. He is more stupid than any man that he has known. And why he says that. Look at verse Verse 2, surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. He is blown away by what he doesn't understand. He is blown away, literally thrown by the fact that everything he ever learned or sought out only proved to illustrate the fact that he couldn't think himself into the wisdom that he sought. He He could want wisdom, he could seek wisdom, and he finally realized how completely foolish he was to think that he could be in this humanity ever to find wisdom. He couldn't find wisdom, and we can't either outside of this. He discovered wisdom can only be found through Scripture. Wisdom can only be understood through obedience. Wisdom can only be sought through humility, and wisdom can only be appreciated through reflection. And we're going to see this discovery take place in verses 1 through 6. He says, Neither, verse 3, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended to heaven and descended, who has gathered the wind in his fist, who has wrapped the waters in his garment, who has established in the ends of the earth. What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you be proved a liar. There is a road that every single man and woman in this room must undertake if you're ever going to find wisdom. And that road leads you from yourself to the Bible. It's hard a lesson to learn, but it's a painful lesson to endure, but it's the only lesson worth really listening to and learning. The sooner you realize that wisdom doesn't come from inside you, the sooner you can find wisdom. That wisdom, like all truth, exists outside yourself, not inside yourself. But most people spend the entirety of their life seeking answers from within themselves. They spend countless years searching for meaning in in their own soul. But if you look too long inside yourself, you will find nothing there but darkness and an abyss. And there never are any answers there to what really trouble your heart. The further down you travel into your own heart looking for answers, the sadder you will become and the more anxious your thoughts will be and the more fearful you will feel. But you are not born believing that to be true. You, have, you are born, fallen, and it tells you that all you need is already inside of you. You will waste your life, however, if you try looking for wisdom there. The only place you can find wisdom is God, and then God has made himself and his will known in one place, his word. Now we finally come to Proverbs 31. And back in chapter one, remember the entire book begins as if it's about to witness the tender moment of a son who was about to leave his parents' home. He's grown under his father's rule. He had matured under his mother's influence. But now he's about to leave the comforts of their oversight and face the inevitable crossroads of his life. He knew that one day he would rule the people who belong to God. He knew that one day he must go on to become the nation, to the nation what his father was to him, a king who would show other people wisdom. And so because of the greatness of this responsibility, he listens to his father's words. He pleads with him from his heart concerning the many voices that he will call to him to either save the kingdom or lose the kingdom. So from the very beginning of Proverbs, even today, we have been introduced to two women, two opposing forces that beg for his attention, the forbidden woman and lady wisdom. 
The first is forbidden woman in chapters five and seven. She is the folly, a uh, woman of folly, the adulterous siren who calls to young princes day and night. She searches out her prey in the shadows of dark streets and begs all to pass by to come her way. He will fail, he knows, if he listens to her. And then we're introduced to Lady Wisdom in chapters eight and nine. She shouts out to all the marketplaces to come and listen to her. She personifies wisdom and she's the voice he's to heed to. But even still, the struggle between these two women is profound. And then here at the very end of the book comes another woman who is much more than a symbol. She is much more than an ideal. She is real. She is presented to us as the kind of woman a prince should marry. The kind of woman who becomes in living form the incarceration, excuse me, the incarnation, not the incarceration, the, the incarnation of wisdom itself. What a play on words. She is wisdom personified and wisdom personalized. She is the princess of Proverbs. And the entire force of divine wisdom says, marry her. It's as if the entire journey of Proverbs ends with the Spirit of God saying, like wisdom herself, if you find her, then marry her. Become united with her. Spend the rest of your life with her and only her because she can be found in this life. She is more than a concept. She is reality for those that seek her. So ironically, through the book of Proverbs was written to a son who would be king. The book of Proverbs ends by showing us how all the wisdom it taught and modeled now is manifested in a daughter who would be queen. Through the entire book has been focused on the teaching of a young prince, how to take a throne. He is now taught as to whom should be there that sits by him as he reigns. It is the quintessential fairy tale book ending. And its detailed description of this kind of woman, a prince should marry, is actually amazing and profound. It's the culmination of his entire search for wisdom, that the reason he is to seek out this woman is more profound and life-changing than you and I maybe once ever supposed. And I say that because Proverbs 31 itself has to do with much more than merely providing a prince his princess. It has to do with connecting all the incredible themes of this wonderful book together and providing this prince as well as you and me, protection for our lives if we would only marry this woman. She is a protection to him, and she is a protection to us as well. There's so much more I could say. I've uh, taught for a couple of years in the book of Proverbs. If you will go to uh, the website and look through uh, Proverbs, uh, Tom Patton, you'll be able to find all of this in much, much more detail. I did three lessons in Proverbs 31, ladies, and I think you might really appreciate it. It's an amazing study, but our time is gone. I hope that didn't um, make too many people lose their breath as we were going through that. I know that was neck break speed, and hopefully it was comprehensive to some degree. Thank you so much for being here for Sundays in July, and I hope this was helpful to you. Let me pray. You're welcome. You're so welcome. (laughs) Heavenly Father, it's so good to be back together again. It's so good just to see faces and to be able to, to understand that we are sitting together learning from you at the same time. And thank you for this book of Proverbs that is Unlike any book in the Bible, wisdom that we need, wisdom that we seek, and the only place that wisdom can be found. Help us as we kind of assimilate all the information that we just went through this morning and prepare us to worship even now as we go to worship before um, your messenger, our pastor. Thank you for this time together. In Christ's name, amen.